Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Human communities fixate on self-preservation, naturally forming traditions and customs that protect them from outside threats. The problem of protectionism is amplified when a group's leaders benefit from it, turning the community against itself, even alienating children from parents for self-gain. With this in mind, it's easy to see why religious rules often devolve into an us-against-them paradigm. In human communities, self-preservation is wrongly elevated as virtue, enabling the very behaviors the Bible warns will lead to our destruction. It's counterintuitive, but in the Torah, self-preservation works against the survival of the community. In seeking to keep the evil out, we neglect the evil within. Unfortunately, by turning away the unclean outsider, we cut ourselves off from the life revealed in Mark's gospel, extended to us from the wilderness by way of the very outsiders we fear. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verse 53, to chapter 7, verse 13. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 165 of the Bible as Literature podcast. I want to begin today's episode by welcoming all of our friends from the Naked Bible podcast. We are excited to have you with us on this program. We believe very strongly in the work of Dr. Michael Heiser, and we are delighted to expand the community of podcast listeners committed to biblical studies. For those listeners of the Bible's Literature podcast, just an introduction to Dr. Michael Heiser and his work. The Naked Bible podcast gets its name from its core goal to help listeners read the biblical text in light of its own ancient context not creeds or confessions or denominational distinctives. The Naked Bible podcast tries to get listeners to consider how the original writers wanted to be understood and how they presumed their original audience would have read what they produced. To that end, the podcast frequently introduces listeners to texts and artifacts that help us understand the worldview of the ancient Near East and the Second Temple period. Dr. Michael Heiser does such a great job of incorporating scholarly discussions, but in a really down-to-earth, very practical way, always enjoy listening to the Naked Bible podcast. Very closely aligned with our mission, which is to read the biblical text in light of its own ancient context and not to impose anything on the text. Not to go to the text looking for something we already believe, but to go to the text in the position of one submitting to God in order to be shaped and formed by the text. So I'm thankful that we have this opportunity to learn from Dr. Heiser and also to promote his work in conjunction with our ministry here at the Bible as Literature. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. 
When they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him and ran about the whole country and began to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. We have people looking for healing. Jesus is not doing a lot of teaching here. So we understand that this is secondary to Jesus's mission. We've mentioned time and time again, don't get excited when Jesus goes around healing. That's not his main mission. His main mission is to make sure that the seed spreads and the seed is planted. Wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak, and as many as touched it were being cured. So Jesus is continuing to show mercy on the crowds. He's continuing to serve them and to minister to them in submission to his Father's will. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. When I hear this text, it reminds me of my father, who used to make fun of ritual purity. Having grown up in the Middle East, he was very cynical about cultic emphasis on cleanliness because he was formed by this same gospel that the cleanliness that the Bible demands or that any sacred text demands has nothing to do with bacteria and germs. I'm even cynical when people rationalize the laws inscribed in the Pentateuch as having some value in terms of hygiene or public safety. I think this is irrelevant. There may have been practices that pertain to hygiene, but that's not the interest of the Torah. The interest of the Torah is to show you that you're unrighteous, not to make sure you don't get sick from bacteria. So let's be clear that this is a very cynical text. This is a very cynical observation on the part of Mark. When they're sitting down to eat, they're viewed as impure and unwashed. This brings to mind Galatians when the spies coming from James see that Peter is sitting down with the unclean, unwashed Gentiles. So this cynicism against those who would eat in the fashion that they would see as unfit is the problem. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. They're separating Jew from Gentile, which again reinforces this understanding that the tension from Galatians is very much alive in this scene. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. Jesus, at the end of chapter 6, was healing people in the marketplace. Jesus went to serve, to care for people, to take care of them, to minister to them. The marketplace is a place where everyone gathers. It has a kind of ecumenical character. It's open. That's what's nice about the marketplace. Notice here, though, the Pharisees and the scribes come back from the marketplace acting like by mingling with other people, they're now unclean, which again is a betrayal of the teaching of clean and unclean in the Pentateuch. It's not about whether or not you touched hands with a Gentile or exchanged money with a Greek or a Roman. It's about whether or not you abused a Greek or a Roman. Notice how it's not just as simple as, well, if these clean freaks want to wash their hands, let them wash their hands. No, because they really believe that by washing their hands after touching a Greek, they're doing their religious duty. And that's the insanity 
of the stupidity. Can I coin that phrase, Richard? The insanity of the stupidity. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? They make a stronger point here than it sounded like they were going to make before, where it was just about cleanness and uncleanness. Do you walk according to the tradition of the elders? Why are your disciples disobedient? Because the Pharisees and scribes can then undermine Jesus by saying that Jesus is teaching his own teaching that's separate from the elders, that's separate from the teaching that's been handed down. And this is how, when they say this, they can undermine what Jesus is saying by looking at what the disciples are doing and how they come in conflict with what was passed down. There are two authorities that are at odds with each other in any community. There's the authority of the word of God and there's the worldly authority that people claim for all kinds of crazy reasons in order to serve their own needs and for their own gain. Now typically people hear this critique of the elders and then turn around and critique their elders. We've hit this many times on the podcast but this is also hypocrisy because people hear this and say oh this means that we don't have to follow any authority and who are they to tell us? That's not what the text is saying. You do have to submit to authority. It's the authority of the word of God, not the authority of the elders. But insofar as the disciples and Mark carry the word of the Father handed to them by Jesus, they hold the authority of that word. It's not their authority. It's so easy to say, we believe in what the fathers teach and what the fathers teach and what the fathers teach. Let me see if you're kosher or not. Are you following what the fathers teach? Let me ask you, what do you think of what the fathers teach? And they go on and on like this when all they can do is quote two quotes from the fathers and they don't know scripture. They don't understand how it all fits together. They don't understand the teaching itself. It's not enough to know who Jesus is and to come and want to be healed by him. It's understanding his teaching and understanding how to follow that teaching in that broader sense. What Jesus is showing them here is that there is an authority and that you do have to submit to it and that that authority is above the scribes and the Pharisees and their role in the community, the role of the presbyter in the community is to say what Jesus is about to say, which is to quote the prophecy. Jesus does not give his opinion about authority. He does not say there should or there should not be authority ascribed to the elders. He's not interested in that discussion because for him, there is a clear line of authority. There is a command chain. There is no question who is in charge. And he said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as instruction the precepts of men. And here it says in English, teaching as doctrines. And I really hate that translation because it betrays the theology bias as though Jesus is talking about a creed. In the Greek it says beautifully, didaskondes didaskalias, teaching as though it's a teaching, teaching as a teaching as though what the elders think is a teaching. This is the point. Don't think. Because if the elders, and this is what I'm trying to say, Richard, if the elders stood up and opened the scroll of Isaiah and read it with authority, everything would be fine. 
they honor him with their lips, meaning it's lip service. When the scribes and Pharisees talk about the importance of cleaning, of cleaning the hands, of cleaning the crockery, it's simply lip service. There's nothing that comes of this. There's no fruit that comes of this because the heart is far from him, meaning there is no teaching in the heart for it to germinate, for it to bring forth fruit. And so they just teach doctrines. They just say things, but there is no actual submission to the teaching of Jesus. And this is why the previous scene of the healings made me uneasy because there is no evidence, no fruit that the people are listening to what Jesus is teaching and following it. Here there's no understanding that the scribes and Pharisees are hearing the word of God and actually doing it. This is a damning critique of modern religion because you go to the churches, whatever denomination, and all you hear is vain talk, 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 empty talk, and they believe that they're submitting to this text. Your job isn't to think or give your opinion. Your job is to do what the Lord Jesus Christ did in this passage, which is to stand up in the assembly and remind them of what Isaiah said. And don't blink and don't hesitate. Just announce the judgment. We have to get it into our minds that this is the decree of the king. And if you serve the king, your job is to make sure the decree gets out without your commentary or your opinion. It's too common to hear in churches people spending a lot of time on who is clean and who is unclean, who is doing the right thing, who is doing the wrong thing, who makes good decisions, who makes bad decisions, who voted correctly, who voted incorrectly, which politicians are good, which politicians are bad. This is 90% of the discourse you're going to hear in any church. In fact, none of that vain talk shows that the individuals have actually submitted to the teaching. This is the irony, is that the people who talk the loudest about who is in and who is out, who is clean, who is unclean, believe most strongly that their heart is closest to God when in fact their heart is empty of God's word. When in fact, Dr. Benton, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Not you, my dear friend Richard, but anyone who engages in worldly talk in the name of God and can't recite one verse from Isaiah in English, let alone Hebrew. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. And this reminds me of people, you know, even in the secular setting at work, I always say there are people who are professional and coming to work and doing nothing. And if they put as much effort into actually doing their jobs as they put into looking as though they're working, I mean, they could probably run for president of the United States. It's the same thing. These people become experts in following their made-up ideology, but they can't quote one verse of Isaiah. People spend so much time on their traditions, meaning the actions and the teachings that they were passed down to them, and they're so enamored with them that, like you say, Father, they neglect Scripture itself. They don't know what the words of Scripture say And this is what Jesus is trying to focus on so that they understand what Scripture is actually teaching because, lo and behold, it may actually contradict the tradition that they're upholding so strongly. And don't give me this nonsense that people have been saying about the spirit of the teaching and we don't need to memorize Scripture, we just have to get the gist. No, 
you need to memorize it. You need to read it. You need to know it. To have the Torah inscribed on your heart, to have the gospel inscribed on your heart, means to memorize it. I don't care if you understand it. That's not the issue. You have to know it. It has to be your companion and your familiar friend and your kinsman in the night watches. It has to be with you all the time, as in you have to carry a Bible with you. You're either hot or you're cold towards the Bible. There's no middle ground. It's an all or nothing proposition. And so when you play this game of saying, well, we shouldn't be quoting scripture, we just have to kind of understand it. When you go down this path of laziness and sloth, what you are doing is making space for the teachings of men. Because teachings of men are easy. You make them up. They suit your needs. They fit your logic. Scripture does not suit your needs. It does not fit your logic. And it goes against everything you think is practical for your purposes. So there's no way that a preacher who isn't studying the Bible in Hebrew and in Greek and working at it every day, there's no way that they're going to be able to serve God when they open their mouth to give their opinion because they don't know what they're talking about. When you want to pronounce your teaching let me ask one question, which is who benefits from your teaching? If it's you who benefits from your teaching, you need to go back to scripture and make sure that you're understanding because then it sounds very self-serving and we know that's the opposite of what scripture does. If it serves your neighbor and not you, then maybe there's a chance that it's correct. But either way, there's one measuring stick that one uses, which is scripture. Now I'm not saying if you don't know Greek or you don't know Hebrew, because all of us have different skill sets. I'm not saying you can't receive the content of Scripture. I'm saying don't take shortcuts. Approach it with humility. Make the effort. Everybody can have a dictionary in hand when they read the text. Don't believe yourself. Do not trust in yourself. When you tell me that I didn't study, but I kind of read it and I got the gist and I have the Holy Spirit, and then you get up and speak... What I hear is that you are abusing the Holy Spirit for convenience because you didn't take the time to buy a dictionary from Barnes & Noble. Heck, you don't even need a dictionary now. Everything's online. Make the effort. There is no one who cannot make the effort. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. And this is an important commandment. And it's one that scripture repeatedly hits on in the New Testament. Because the New Testament is all about the command chain and about submitting to fate. And your parents are your parents, whether you like them or not, whether they're proud of you or not, whether they were good parents or wicked parents or cruel or nice. Please do not waste time psychoanalyzing your parents. You are offending God when you do so. Assume that if your parents were cruel, it was God's judgment against you. Because the commandment is the commandment. I love the fact in this culture where everybody thumbs their nose at their parents. I love the fact that scripture keeps hitting this commandment. Honor your father and mother. And the penalty is very serious. If you speak ill of father and mother, you'll be put to death. Here's the funny thing about that commandment, Richard. If you don't submit to your parents, whatever they are, whatever your opinion is or your psychologist's opinion is of your parents. If you don't submit to them, 
the only one that will suffer is you and your children and you will be dust unto dust another human line going nowhere because you did not allow the Torah to intercede and to give life to you and to your children the way that the Torah intercedes in Genesis with each of the patriarchs if you're still trying to fix your parents instead of honor them you are still trying to create your own line and you will fail again the question is who benefits and when you honor your father and your mother you put yourself second to them and you think less highly of yourself i mean this is how scripture is working time and time again and even speaking evil of them results according to the law in death but you say if a man says to his father or his mother whatever i have that would help you is qurban that is to say given to god it's the offering and for those of you who are of Middle Eastern origin, you know that the bread that we use in the Byzantine liturgy, the offering is the qurban. It's what we lift up to God. So there's a connection in the terminology that's worth noting. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. So the sin here, Richard, harkens back to Hosea. You've talked about this often. It's the same dynamic. The function of the qurban in the service is to give deference to the teaching which commands you to honor your parents for the sake of the common good and for the sake of those not born yet. And instead, the presbyters are using the qurban to dishonor your parents, which ends up consigning your family line to the dust for their worldly glory, and the gospel is not preached. The one who is accepting the sacrifice, the offering, is the one who's supposed to be teaching what Torah is teaching, that is what Moses taught, so how is it possible that the person who is accepting the gift that contradicts then the word that Moses taught? It's not logical. It doesn't make sense. And what Jesus is doing here is he's showing that the action that they're taking contradicts the word that they're upholding, even upholding it against Jesus and his disciples. So they're not making sense. Jesus is catching them in their problematic logic because they don't think about what scripture is actually teaching thus invalidating the word of god by your tradition which you have handed down and you do many such things as that are you building your dynasty which is the dynasty of stone in genesis and construction or are you receiving god's line which is this oasis in the wilderness that you didn't build, that you didn't make. Rather than the individual using their substance to help make sure that their parents are being taken care of, they're taking care of the temple and the temple functionaries at the expense of their parents. So it says you even prevent your people from honoring their father and their mother. You prevent them from taking care of their own flesh and blood, their own mother and father. And so again, the question is who is benefiting from this tradition? The father and the mother are the last ones who benefit. They're the ones who are deprived because of this tradition. And it's, as you say, the individual wants to establish their own line as if they don't come from a father and mother, right. as if they come from nowhere, as if they come from their own genesis. Rather than the respect where they come from, first and foremost, they have this tradition that then can short-circuit that and say, 
you're the most important. You offered this great offering for the temple. You did a great thing. Yes, we understand your father and mother, they don't get what they thought they were going to get, but that's okay because you're doing what's really important, which is taking care of God, which doesn't make any sense, of course. No, they're saying God is more important than your parents, which is how Christians talk today. God is more important than your parents. But once you say that, what you're really saying to your disciple is, I'm God, follow me, don't follow your parents. But that's not the world that God created. In the world that God created, he gave you a father and a mother. And like it or not, that is the father and that is the mother he gave you for you. Are you going to accept what God has offered or reject it? Now this is difficult because sometimes there are parents who really are terrible. I mean, they're outliers as far as I'm concerned. People make out of themselves victims very often when they have a cushioned life. Just ask the kids sleeping under mosquito nets in Africa what they think of their parents. I mean, come on. But even so, however difficult a person is to deal with, if God put them in your path, it's your problem. It's your test. But in a society of convenience where we divorce each other and excuse ourselves from having relationships with each other and avoid each other and run home to our living room to watch TV or play Xbox... We feel justified in thumbing our nose at our children, thumbing our nose at our parents, thumbing our nose at our friends for convenience and self-service. But thanks be to God, the Torah is a roadblock for those who reject the teaching of the New Testament that you are to call no other human being unclean. Thanks very much, Dr. Benson. Thank you, Father. the bible as literature thanks for listening the bible as literature is a production of the ephesus school network